at David's life from the scriptures. And to be honest, there's a ton in David's life to choose from. And so I kind of narrowed it down to a few things that I think all of us can relate to, hopefully. And so David's life was filled with drama and action, for sure. He had a huge influence on the people of God. And his life like directly affects even our spiritual heritage. And so um, really some really cool stuff here. So a quick overview. Um, and some of you who maybe were brought up um, being exposed to the Bible, this is all kind of review for you. Um, for a few of you, I'll just kind of like bring you up to speed with just some generic, like here's some of the high points of his life. Um, he started off as this insignificant shepherd boy, uh, but was brave, he was talented, and apparently while he was out in his fields, had developed some type of reputation, uh, like a good reputation. And eventually, King Saul had made some mistakes, had not really followed God's commands very closely, and Samuel, the prophet, gets led by God to anoint David as the next king. And so David eventually ends up as one of Saul's armor bearers, and he's acknowledged there for his, his skills. And Saul, the king there, was initially happy with David, was pleased with his service and his abilities. But eventually, David starts to grow in stature and fame, especially with this scenario where he takes on this Philistine giant that is challenging the people of God. And when he does that, his celebrity, so to speak, starts to grow. So Saul's still in leadership, but has made a bunch of mistakes and now is starting to become... I think, jealous, enraged. There is this clamoring amongst the people for David to step in and kind of take his place. And so Saul, being concerned about that, uh, starts to pursue David, starts to um, really chase him around and attempt to kill him. And even in that, David develops, I mean, he just has an amazing attitude, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. Um, David knows that kingship is waiting for him. And even though Saul is pursuing him and attempting to kill him, he honors Saul. And he doesn't push himself forward to take over the throne. He's willing to trust God's timing for that. So that's a really generic backstory, and I kind of left out a few details that we're going to touch on now this morning. So let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to listen to your word. God, I pray that there are things that we could draw from David's life that would apply to us, that we would see that we really do have a lot of in common with this king. And so, God, we ask for your heart on this, that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So um, we're going to talk about this guy here who, even though was somewhat celebrity-like and ended up being a king, has a lot in common with us peasants, all right? Um, and unlike some of you in this room, I did not grow up in the church, <clears throat> and so Bible stories like, I didn't hear them growing up. My only exposure, like, even hearing this story, David and Goliath, was this. Davy and Goliath. Okay, if you're over 50, is there anybody that remembers this? Lynn? Okay, anyone else besides me and Lynn? Oh, yeah, we got a few others. Love it. Love it. Okay, so this was on Sunday mornings. And the dog talked like this, Davy. So Davy's on the left. Goliath is the dog. Here's another picture of him. And so, um, yeah, so there they were. And that was it. Like on Sunday mornings, I remember seeing that story, Davy and Goliath. And turns out that, um, and I remember on the credits, it said it was a, a presentation of the Lutheran church. And so there was some you know, God stuff that was molded in there for sure. But that was like my exposure to this story. So I didn't know much about it. And so then I come to Christ, I start reading the scripture for the first time and really started to learn, oh my gosh, there's a lot to this. Now I know why this story is so important. So a few qualities that really attracted me to David and his life. <clears throat> One is that he's an underdog, and I love underdog stories. I think all of us do. I mean, there's a lot of movies that are based on underdogs, and, and according to Scripture, this initial description of David, I mean, he is an, under, an underdog for sure. And 1 Samuel 16 says this in verse 7, says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. This is God referring to Saul. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So he's the youngest, okay? Um, Samuel of, these, of all these brothers, there's seven of them, seven of Jesse's sons, passed before Samuel. And so Samuel is now going to anoint this new king. And it goes like this. So seven of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel, but God had chosen none of them. Samuel asked if Jesse had any more sons. Like, is this all you got? Is there anyone else? The youngest, David, was out tending sheep. So they called the boy in, and Samuel anointed David with oil and said, This is the one. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So he's the youngest. He's inexperienced, of course. He's kind of the baby of the family. Certainly would not be the first choice to be the next ruling king of Judah. There are some scholars that would say probably between 12 and 16 years old at this time. Okay, but we learn something really important about God here. And that is, it is not the outside. It is the heart that God looks at. Good friend of mine, brilliant student, um, really intelligent, 
got his MBA, really high honors. He told me, he said, man, um, when it came to job fairs, Jim, I hated job fairs. I was like, why? You know, you had all these credentials. He said, yeah, but I'm short. It's like, uh, okay, what do you mean? And he said, no, literally, like at the business job fairs, the top companies would literally just walk right by me and talk to the tall guys. Right, I know, it sounds crazy, but he was like, man, it was super frustrating. Really frustrating. And he knew he didn't really stand a chance when it came to that kind of context. And we see this in Hollywood, we see this with sports and business, so much is based on our outside appearance. We see this with um, musicians, singers. There are some that are extremely talented, but they don't look the greatest. And so when they find someone that has that talent, the industry that determines, well, they don't look like they should, they do a lot of surgery and they eventually fix them up and then they look presentable. And unfortunately, like Allison and I actually were on um, Trading Spaces. You guys remember that show? Old show, we were on that once. And um, it was incredible learning about all this stuff kind of behind the scenes. And I will say, like I'm not, you know, I'm not, saying plastic surgery, go for that. All I'm saying is that when I looked at myself on the camera, my wrinkles looked like, they looked awful. <laughs> awful. I'd look at that, you know, and I, I mentioned to one of the, you know, one of the people on the show, I was like, oh my gosh, I look terrible. And she was like, well, that's why we all get Botox. I was like, okay, it makes sense now. Because <laughs> I look like I have massive lines everywhere. So... Anyways, but man, they feel that pressure and has so much to do with the outside. But I love this because David is an underdog. And there are, these underdog stories are not mythical. They happen every day. Every single day there are underdogs that succeed because of what they bring to the table and their character. There are single parents that are running a household and taking care of their family. There are alcoholics that just went another decade, decade without a drink. There are brothers and sisters in Christ right now who are loving people that hate them. They're serving others, and they're going to pay dearly for it right now on this globe. And I am not saying this to be dramatic, I'm saying it to be authentic, it's real. There are everyday heroes around us. So these underdog stories, for me, I see them in sports, I'm an athlete, I see them in other areas too, but one of the things that got me years ago was the United States Olympic hockey team in 1980. Okay, now that's a while ago. Who was not alive yet in 80? Oh my gosh, this is so rough. Okay, it's like, it's like history, telling history here. So anyway, so let me give you a little bit of backstory. So the United States and Russia were really, like there was a lot of tension. And as a little kid, that was one of the things that we worried about, was like Russia is going to bomb us or something, and so we would have like these drills, remember, where 
duck and cover and everything, and I was always worried, like, man, the Russians, they're just, they're mean, okay? And they had this really just stone-cold type, like, emotionless um, persona. And so, in the Olympics, it's supposed to be amateurs, and we kind of followed those rules. So we had a bunch of college kids from the ponds of Minnesota and North Dakota and Michigan who are playing these men, okay? This is, this is one of the coaches and four of the Russian players, and they're all part of the Russian Red Army, and they had played together ever since they were little kids. They were professionals, they were paid, they had all kinds of stuff going on. That's who we played against, okay? The Russian Red Army players, and they were amazing and they were gonna destroy us. And so everyone is watching this game, the US and Russia, and there they are, a bunch of those guys. They ended up coming over to the States, a lot of them after. And so we beat them. And we beat them, and it is amazing. And people that are not into hockey at all are just like stopping their cars and celebrating. And this is our kids, like look at them. They're absolutely out of control. Two guys that went to my college played on the team. So there's Jack O'Callaghan, has like three teeth in his head. <laughs> was just crying, was so excited. And this was the best shot. While our guys had won and were going crazy, the underdogs, there's the Russians standing there watching us. And I was like, that scene right there was awesome. Take that, boys. I mean, that was, it was great. You could tell that these guys are just like, oh my gosh, we just lost to a bunch of 19 and 20-year-old college kids who had played together for about like three months. And those guys had played together since they were little kids. And so underdogs, man, it was just amazing. It was an amazing story. So when it comes, though, to the outside appearance, and again, this is just our culture, but some of you guys know, like, we have four boys that play football, all right? Football is uh, a meat market. It is unbelievable. So the NFL draft, they have this combine, and prior to the combine, they have all the guys line up, and they walk up, and they get weighed, and they get measured and everything in this huge room full of reporters. It's like three times the size of this, and they're all just standing in their underwear, yeah, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. And they measure everything. And they're, I mean, it is just crazy. And to me, like the first time I saw it, I was like, this is, this is weird. And it bothered me. Like it felt like, um, it felt like slave trade. Like they're walking up and, and you know, all these physical specimens, and, um, and we've noticed this as our oldest son got recruited for college. Um, it's strange. So right now, college coaches will come to all the local high schools in Orlando, all right? And they get a prospect list, and they look at their height and their weight and their 40 times and all this stuff, and then they bring them out of class, and so they'll have kind of an interview with them. And one of the things they do in the interviews is they'll always, hey, man, great to see you. And they, they touch you a lot. 
like it is. It's weird. And but they're trying to like, is this guy thick enough that he's going to be able to take a pounding? Like they're they're thinking about these are investments. If we're going to offer scholarships, then I want him to be built like Tanyan. Okay? <laughs> he's got some good muscles. He can take a pounding. Go ahead, pound on him after the church. See, he can take it. So, that's right. That's right. So, unfortunately, that's sort of the way the world works in a lot of, in a lot of areas. The outside is what matters. And yet, God says the heart is what matters. And I love in 1 Samuel 13, says this. He talking about David, is a man after my own heart. David was described as a man after God's own heart. Man, that's important. A couple weeks ago, I showed a video on Nehemiah, and at the very end of it, the, um, the ones that produced the video, they said the message there and what God was really after was heart transformation. And here's the beauty of that. God's desire is for heart transformation. And every single one of us has one. All of us. Like, we all have what we need. We have what it takes according to God's economy. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. There it is again. There's something about the heart that is important to God. And the truth is that a lot of us in this room are underdogs. We didn't come from wealth. Our childhood was pretty dysfunctional. Our family dynamics were kind of screwed up. Nobody really believed in us. Some of us barely made it to class in college. Um, but here we are. Some of us have made some really dumb decisions in our life. And yet, we look at David's life and we encounter a man who simply trusted that his God was going to do the battling for him, and therefore, he was in good shape. David assumed that because God had helped him in some smaller situations, that he could trust him in the big stuff also. Sorry about that. I just realized I skipped this section. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Last thing. Okay, one more example of just the underdog. 
And, um, and this is kind of a local example. Uh, I, again, like I said, I've kind of been attracted to the underdogs. There's a kid here in town. His name is Brian Jenkins, okay? And Brian um, played football, played football with uh, our oldest one, Luke. And um, Jenkins is a total yapper. Like, I mean, he never shuts up. And we were playing seven on seven, and there's all these guys that are just absolute monsters, okay? And then there's BJ, there's Jenkins. And he is loud and obnoxious, and it is just crazy how he plays. And it's funny, because after the game, you have all these man-child people who are all like, who is that kid? Who is this kid? And we're like, oh, that's BJ. Really? Yeah, he's an eighth grader. So it's all like juniors and seniors, okay? And then we got BJ. See him? He's a little guy right there, okay? Yeah, that's prior to eighth grade. Or no, that's, that's just after eighth grade. So there he is. He's a little dude, all right? And then there's this guy, Bruce Judson, if we can go back to that slide of Bruce. Okay, so Bruce, that 185 is not accurate. He's, way, he's 184 pounds of muscle. It's ridiculous. So anyway, BJ is covering Bruce. Bruce is going to go run a route. And BJ um, is all over Bruce, just yapping like crazy. And so, like usual... And so BJ says, listen, I will lock you up. You will go nowhere on me. You won't even be able to run a route. I will stop you dead in your tracks, you piece of, you know, I mean, just all over. It gets even worse. And Bruce is standing across from him. He's twice his size. And, you know, we're just like, man, this is awesome. BJ, I'm not sure what he's going to do. And sure enough, as soon as the QB snaps the ball, BJ, they're not wearing equipment. BJ hauls off and slaps <laughs> Bruce right across the face, just drills him. And Bruce literally just like stops. And BJ just like mic drop and walks away. And that's exactly what he said he was going to do. You can't run a route, I will stop you in your tracks. And he did. And we have it. I could not find the video. It was all over online how Jenkins stopped Judson. And Judson, you could tell, was in total shock. Like, did that just happen? He literally could not even take a step. It was awesome. So, that's the story I forgot. Sorry about that. But you're so much better for it, right? Well, here's why I feel like that relates to us is that all of us are probably like, well, he was an underdog, he was outmatched, but one thing we probably love is his attitude. Like, that's what people were attracted to with BJ. And people would talk to him, and now he plays college football, and he's their leading receiver, and there's a bunch of guys that are 10 times bigger than him. And he's doing the same thing, and it seems like every time there's an interview with Alabama A&M, guess who gets interviewed and guess who gets all the press? The yapper, BJ. And he's great at it. He really is. And he just loves doing it. And in the midst of all that, God's doing really cool stuff in his life too. 
which is really, which is really neat. So, we've got underdogs here in the room. And to me, that's inspiring. It's inspiring to see David, who knew that he could trust God in some small things, trust him for some bigger things, and that is unusual, to see someone trust God, and then furthermore, trust God for God's timing, which was something that David did also. To me, that's inspiring. I think that's why people were attracted to BJ, was his attitude, and I think that's also why people were attracted to David, was because of his attitude. Like him challenging this Philistine giant was kind of silly, definitely outmatched. I'm sure some of them are like, this is not going to go well. But you had to admire that attitude. And that is worth following. Like those are the kind of people we are attracted to follow. The other thing I love about David was his humility. It took humility to trust God's timing on things. He could have said, listen, Saul has made a lot of mistakes. I've been anointed by Samuel the prophet. People are clamoring for me. Let's just move on with this. Let's get this going, and let's make this happen now. Let me take over. Give me the throne. Instead, he was humble enough to not push himself into that position. That was really important. His humility would surface in other ways. When he was leading, before going out to battle, he would seek God and he would ask for permission and instructions entering into battle. Like, should I attack? Should we do this? So he would continually seek God out. And then his humility would show up where he would say, like in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23, Lord, I've heard that Saul is plotting against me. Is he really on his way? Please tell your servant what you want me to do. What do you want me to do? I love that... There's this humanity in David. He sounds like us. Sounds like us. Like how many times have we felt like, God, I have limited information here. Not really sure what to do in this situation. Can you please help me out? That's what we see with David. And I see that as strength, not weakness. Now, some may view that as like poor leadership, you know, not saying I know exactly what to do all the time, but wouldn't it be refreshing if like a president at some point said, this is a really complex, difficult decision, and honestly, right now, I don't know what's best to do. We need to do a lot of research. I need to think about this. I need to talk to a lot of people. I need to pray about it. And then will come to a consensus. I mean, that humility, I think we'd be drawn to that. I know for me, 
I enjoy following leaders that are humble. If there's humility there, man, that is, like, those are the people that I trust when we see humility. When I see a leader who's like, this is what we need to do, they seem to be just absolutely sure of what always is the right, I get suspicious of that. I tend to think, man, I don't know. I would rather have the person that humbly says, God, what do we do here? What would be the best route to take? Humility in leadership is really attractive. It's really attractive in anybody. Humility. So not surprisingly, throughout David's time of being on the run from Saul, he raises up an army. And they were extremely successful. And through it all, he continues to seek God for direction. Another way his humility and his attitude would surface is that he could have been bitter towards Saul. Saul pursuing him, trying to, you know, corner him and kill him. And yet he still honors Saul and treats him with respect. And 1 Samuel 24, 5 through 7 says this, afterward David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. So he had, he was concerned that, um, oh my gosh, I don't want to take a step against my leader, even though his leader is trying to distinguish, extinguish him. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. So he had an opportunity to kill Saul and still, even at that point, was like, no, I will not raise my hand against him. And Saul responds with being affected deeply by that. He's grateful to David. And I think Saul, even at that point, was like, That's, this is why you are the one. Your attitude, your humility, the fact that you would trust God in the midst of this, and not take things into your own hand, into your own hands. You're a good man. David respected God's sovereignty. Next thing is David was not ashamed of the gospel. In 2 Samuel, one of Saul's daughters sees David dancing before the Lord, okay? in front of the people of God, so there's a bunch of people there, and she is offended by his, like, outward showing of praising God. And 2 Samuel 6 says this, she despised him in her heart, and she questions David, how can you as king act so undistinguished in front of the people? And look at how he responds, 2 Samuel 6, it's 21 through 22. David said to Michael, or however you pronounce that, it was before the Lord. He's like, I was worshiping before the Lord. It was me and him. 
who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Essentially, he's like, I don't care. I am going to celebrate what God has done, and I am going to do that in front of others, and it was a display of his humility, an outward display of his humility before God that the people of God could see. He wasn't ashamed. He was proud of what God had done, and he knew that God had done the work. It was an outward expression of his heart. Last thing, we're going to look at David's infamous screw-up, okay? And for time's sake, I'm going to save us reading through it. But very quickly, David's armies are out in battle. He's back at home base. He looks out his window. He sees a woman bathing. He's attracted to her. Then he summons for her. He sleeps with her, and he gets her pregnant. That's called adultery, okay? Talk about a major character meltdown right there. And this is a man after God's own heart that did this? Like, this is a huge blunder, and it gets even worse. Like, after that mess up, then he has to cover it up tries to, so he, he plans and he plots to try to cover up his sin. There's lying, there's manipulation, followed by betraying his own soldier who is fighting for him, her husband, and eventually he is killed. He's an accomplice to his murder. So he covers it up this is about as low as you can go. So again, we have David's humanity on display because all of us have had our moments where we weren't at our best and we mess up real bad. Here's why this is so important in our lives. All of us have like I remember a counselor talking about this good-bad split that we can view things as everybody, this person's all good or all bad, and how that's just so not accurate. The key is, is that all of us are capable of some wonderful, incredible things. And we're also capable of some serious stupidity at times, too. Here's what's encouraging about that, is this is why the gospel is required. That God's forgiveness is there for us, and that we can forgive one another as we wrong each other. We are going to hurt one another, we're going to rub each other the wrong way, and the gospel and the forgiveness that we receive, we receive from God allows us to then live in harmony and peace with each other. That is huge. 
So, Psalm 51. David wrote many of the Psalms, and they're these emotional, like he was um, real with his emotions. And so I'm going to read a little bit from just the very beginning of Psalm 51. This is after Nathan the prophet calls out David for his sin, and David realizes, oh my gosh, Here's what he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the, in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity, and here it is again. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What an incredible depiction and description as David describes how crushed he is in the decisions that he makes and yet relies and rests in God's forgiveness. And he knows again, this is about my heart. God, create in me a clean heart. Wash me clean. He knows that God can do that too. That's why this is like, this is our story. We're underdogs. God can use us tremendously. And yet we're going to make mistakes and we can like just go to him, recognizing that and trust in his forgiveness. So in conclusion, here's the stuff that we can learn from David's life. He can use us as underdogs. Our attitude makes all the difference. We can trust God's timing. He wants our hearts. We will screw up but we can be real with God like David was where he would pen those psalms and we can rest in our forgiveness. He was a king, yes, but he was a flawed human just like us and God worked with what he had and transformed him and saw his heart. And ultimately, Jesus came from the lineage, lineage of David. It's amazing. So we're going to spend some time um, sharing in communion together. In communion, we have Jesus' body being broken for us, his blood being 
shed for us, this symbol of that happening that washes us white as snow, that is the very thing that David had to rely on was God's grace and forgiveness in the midst of his mess-ups. And so that's true for us, that not only has he died and paid for our sin, but then he has started this process of transforming our hearts and making us new people, new creatures, is what it says. The old has gone and the new has come. So this, we get to celebrate together that we don't deserve it. It's not because we just got all our our life together. It's because Jesus paid for it for us. And by his grace, it's given to us as a free gift. And we merely humbly receive that. If that's something that's new to you, they're like, what do you mean about receiving Jesus? I don't get this. Feel free to ask us love to explain that a little bit further. That is the gospel. That is the thing that David was relying on. That for me to have a pure heart, God has to do it. So we're going to, as we, as we, as we uh, sing the next like three songs, head up to, there's two tables here, grab some bread and juice. You can take communion at any time during the next few songs. And we're celebrating together the fact that God has created a new pure heart in us. It's an amazing thing.